From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, this is Obscure Season 4, An American Tragedy. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, international man of misery. Excited. Because, uh, sorry, I'm moving remote controls around. You can probably hear that, and it's unprofessional of me, and I apologize. I'm excited because uh, this is this promises to be a randy episode of an American tragedy. We have so few randy episodes on Obscure, but this one is all teed up and ready for the horn dogs. I mean, you've got the boys, your bellhops, at the house of ill repute. They've got money in their pockets. The girls have been brought down and paraded before them, and Clyde Griffiths, who has been eagerly anticipating this moment, is there amongst them. Uh, We don't know, you know, look, we don't know what's going to happen. Maybe Clyde will get a case of the conscience, is, the conscience is, conscience is, and he'll end up declining, but everything is all teed up for a Randy episode of Obscure, and that is exciting, is it not? Um, Far more exciting than my life, this past week, which has been um, a lot of sleep. I've been sleeping a lot. I'm not ill or anything. I just, you know, I haven't had much to do. And so uh, when I don't have much to do, hey, get a couple naps in. You know, make yourself uh, well-rested if you can be. I'm off to New York, the city, in a couple of days to do a debate for uh, a show called, uh, I think it's called Up for Debate, of all things. And I will be debating whether or not wokeness is killing comedy. I'm guessing you can uh, figure out my stance on this particular matter. And if you can't, you'll have to come to the debate. It's in New York City on Wednesday. Wednesday, September 20th, which will have been long past by the time you listen to this. But let's just assume that I won the debate because... The idea that wokeness is killing comedy is absurd. The very premise is absurd. While sensibilities and sensitivities may have been elevated over these last however many years, the idea that anything is killing comedy or even could kill comedy is absurd. I mean, when you think about all the the rules and strictures that were in place for decades in in the movies and on television about the kind of things you could say and you couldn't say, and comedy figured out a way to flourish then, and now that the gates have been busted wide open and you can pretty much say or do anything, comedy is still flourishing. The idea that any one thing is going to kill comedy is just dumb on its face. That's going to be my argument. My argument is going to be, ladies and gentlemen, this is just dumb on its face. Catch you later. But yeah, so I'll be in New York for, you know, a day. Should be fun. And uh, I'll report back as to how it went. But, you know, we've got a randy episode of Obscure to get to. And I don't, I don't want to dilly-dally any longer. I don't want to dilly-dally when Clyde's dingling is primed and ready to be used. So why don't we pick it up right now with Chapter 10 in American Tragedy. Prepared as Clyde was to dislike all this, 
meaning the, the brothel and such. So steeped had he been in the moods and maxims antipathetic to anything of its kind, still so innately sensual and romantic was his own disposition and so starved where sex was concerned that instead of being sickened, he was quite fascinated. The very fleshly sumptuousness of most of these figures, dull and unromantic as might be the brains that directed them, interested him for the time being. After all, here was beauty of a gross, fleshly character, revealed and purchasable, and there were no difficulties of mood or inhibitions to overcome in connection with any of these girls. One of them, a quite pretty brunette in a black and red costume with a band of red ribbon across her forehead, seemed to be decidedly at home with Higby, for already she was dancing with him in the back room to a jazz melody most irrationally hammered out upon the piano. I mean, it really, these are, these, this is, this is the kind of place that I always uh, imagined when I imagined a brothel. We talked about that last week, you know, red and black and, and, a, and an upright piano in the back room and, and, uh, and fleshy ladies revealing in their sumptuousness. You know, you sort of get this Mae West vibe from this place, don't you? Come up and, why don't you come up and see me sometime, she says. And that's how I imagine all of these gals in their various shapes and sizes and colors and hues and textures, all of them winking lasciviously at these young men saying, why don't you come up and see me sometime? And it seems as though Higby has wasted not a moment and is with some gal dancing in the back room. And Ratterer, to Clyde's surprise, was already seated upon one of the gilt chairs, and upon his knees was lounging a tall young girl with very light hair and blue eyes. And she was smoking a cigarette and tapping her gold slippers to the melody of the piano. It was really quite an amazing and Aladdin-like scene to him. And here was Hegland, before whom was standing a German or Scandinavian type, plump and pretty, her arms akimbo, and her feet wide apart. And she was asking, with an upward swell of the voice, as Clyde could hear, You make love to me tonight? But Hegland, apparently not very much taken with these overtures, calmly shook his head, after which she went on to Kinsella. And even as he was looking and thinking, a quite attractive blonde girl of not less than 24, but who seemed younger to Clyde, drew up a chair beside him and seating herself said, Don't you dance? He shook his head nervously. Want me to show you? Oh, I wouldn't want to try here, he said. Oh, it's easy, she continued. Come on. But since he would not, though he was rather pleased with her for being agreeable to him, she added, Well... How about something to drink, then? Sure, he agreed gallantly, and forthwith she signaled the young negress who had returned as a waitress, and in a moment a small table was put before them, and a bottle of whiskey with soda on the side, a sight that so astonished and troubled Clyde that he could scarcely speak. He had forty dollars in his pocket, 
and the cost of drinks here, as he had heard from the others, would not be less than two dollars each. But even so, think of him buying drinks for such a woman at such a price, and his mothers and sisters and brother at home with scarcely the means to make ends meet. And yet he bought and paid for several, feeling all the while that he had let himself in for a terrifying bit of extravagance, if not in orgy. But now that he was here, he must go through with it. Well, you, 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 you don't need to, Clyde. I have found myself in these uh, situations a couple of times in my life. Not this exact thing, obviously. I have already said I, I have never gone to uh, this sort of establishment. But I have been to strip clubs. And, you know, I think I experience Clyde's apprehension here in this uh, house of ill repute. I experience the same apprehensions when I'm at a strip club and you have the gals coming over and kind of shaking their boobies in your face and saying, hey, will you buy me a drink? And hey, you want a lap dance? And, and making small talk with you. And the whole thing just feels so contrived and forced. And I just feel like such a sucker being there. There's nothing enjoyable about it whatsoever. I don't believe their attention. I don't particularly want their attention. And I certainly don't want to buy them fake drinks. And I don't want to go into the champagne room with them where they're going to grind themselves upon my hips or some such thing. I told this story about this once on the television program Late, The Late Show with David Letterman. This was a, this was a painful uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to re recount this painful story because I had been on Letterman once before and had done badly. I, I just, I, I wasn't in control. I didn't, I was nervous. And I wouldn't say I made a sputtering fool of myself, but it wasn't so far off from that. Well, I got invited on a second time to promote something or another. I don't recall what. And this time I thought, well, I'll be prepared. And I had just returned from my cross-country trip with Megan McCain, where we had documented, you know, the political leanings of our fellow countrymen and women. And as part of that uh, jaunt, we ended up at a strip club in Las Vegas. And Megan, knowing my consternation and bashfulness, paid for one of the dancers to do a dirty dance on me, which turned into something called the Upside Down, a woman... Uh, the, the woman who was dancing for me, probably in her 40s, and she said, do you want the upside down? And I think I probably said, no, thank you. And then Megan said, he does, he does. And the woman launched herself upside down so that her, uh, uh, her crotchy parts were in my face as she was gyrating. And, um, and I was recounting this story on The Letterman Show, and, you know, it had punchlines and jokes and things like that. And, and, and it seemed like it, had been, it, it, it went well. And Justin Bieber had been on the show before me. He was the first guest. And then I came on, and it had gone long, and, and, uh, and Letterman seemed a little bit flustered or whatever. And I told the, I told the Upside Down story, got a lot of laughs, and I thought, well, finally I did well on Letterman. And then I got a call afterwards saying that, um, several of the female producers had been offended by my story. Offended. And I couldn't, I, I was, I was, I was uh, uh, flummoxed. I was flabbergasted because I was, I was treating the story as a look of what an asshole I am. You know, I was being sheepish about it and sort of prudish about it the way Letterman is when he talks about sex. And I couldn't imagine that it, that it was an offensive story at all. And I felt terrible about it. And then they, they cut it. 
don't know, they cut my appearance down to like two minutes or three minutes or something because Bieber went long. And I, I don't know, I just, I felt such shame and embarrassment having gone through that. And it's probably a long way of telling you this story as Clyde Griffiths is waiting to decide what he wants to do to get his rocks off. But he's already paid for several drinks. So that, that $40 that he once had might be down to 32 or $34. Is that going to be enough money for him? To make, it, to make it with this gal? I don't know. Let's get back to it. Sorry for diverting so abruptly and terribly. I, I shouldn't have done that. But, you know, that's, that's the nature of this podcast. And besides, now back to the book, as he now saw, this girl was really pretty. She had on a Delft blue evening gown of velvet with slippers and stockings to match. In her ears were blue earrings and her neck and shoulders and arms were plump and smooth. The most disturbing thing about her was that her bodice was cut very low. He dared scarcely to look at her there. And her cheeks and her lips were painted, most assuredly the marks of the scarlet woman. Now remember, uh, the very first thing we did is we talked about Hester, also known as Esther. We referenced the scarlet letter, Letter Nathaniel Hawthorne, and here presented in living technicolor another scarlet woman, this woman who is making time with Clyde. Yet she did not seem very aggressive, in fact, quite human, and she kept looking rather interestedly at his deep and dark and nervous eyes. You work over at the Green Davidson too, don't you? she asked. Yes replied Clyde, trying to appear as if all this were not new to him, as if he had often been in such a place as this amid such scenes. How did you know? Oh, I know Oscar Hegland, she replied. He comes around here once in a while. Is he a friend of yours? Yes, that is, he works over at the hotel with me. But you haven't been here before. No, said Clyde swiftly, and yet with a trace of inquiry in his own mood. Why should she say he hadn't been here before? Well, from her point of view, that might even be a compliment, Clyde. You know, she probably doesn't have very high regard for the regulars and habitués of this particular establishment. She's probably happy to relieve their wallets of their bills, but does she respect them? Hard to say. I thought you had, and I'd seen most of these other boys before, but I never saw you. You haven't been working over at the hotel very long, have you? No, said Clyde, a little irritated by this, his eyebrows and the skin of his forehead rising and falling as he talked, a form of contraction and expansion that went on involuntarily whenever he was nervous or thought deeply. What of it? Oh, see, he's being defensive. Come on, kid. Don't be defensive. Just, you know, go with the flow here. See where it takes you. Oh, nothing. I just knew you hadn't. You don't look very much like these other boys. You look different. She smiled oddly and rather ingratiatingly, a smile and a mood which Clyde failed to interpret. How different, he inquired solemnly and contentiously, taking up a glass and drinking from it. Well, I'll bet you one thing, she went on, ignoring his inquiry entirely. You don't care for girls like me very much, do you? Oh, yes, I do, he said evasively. Oh, no, you don't either, I can tell. But I like you just the same. I like your eyes. You're not like those other fellas. You're more refined, kinda. I can tell. You don't look like them. Oh, I don't know, replied Clyde, very much pleased and flattered, his forehead wrinkling and clearing as before. 
This girl was certainly not as bad as he thought. Maybe she was more intelligent, a little more refined than the others. Her costume was not so gross, and she hadn't thrown herself upon him as had these others upon Hegland, Higby, Kinsella, and Ratterer. Nearly all of the group by now were seated upon chairs or divans about the room, and upon their knees were girls, and in front of every couple was a little table with a bottle of whiskey upon it. Well, as, uh, as the girl tries to woo her young charge into, uh, you know, a night of, uh, of tumble-down in the sack, we'll take a little break. We'll let them enjoy their whiskey and soda. We'll all think about our first awkward sexual experiences. We'll relax. We'll take a puff on our cigars and exhale into the smoky bordello as we pause for a moment here on Obscure. Back on Obscure with the scene unfolding there at the bordello. All the boys accompanied now, a girl on each lap, a bottle of whiskey on each table, and Clyde not quite knowing what to make of it all. Look who's drinking whiskey, called Kinsella to such of the others as would pay attention to him, glancing in Clyde's direction. Well, you needn't be afraid of me, went on the girl, while Clyde glanced at her arms and necks, at her too-much-revealed bosom, which quite chilled and yet enticed him. I haven't been so very long in this business, and I wouldn't be here now if, I hadn't, if it hadn't been for all the bad luck I've had. I'd rather live at home with my family if I could, only they wouldn't have me now. She looked rather solemnly at the floor, thinking mainly of the little inexperienced dunce Clyde was, so raw and green, also of the money she had seen him take out of his pocket, plainly quite a sum. Also, how really good-looking he was, not handsome or vigorous, but pleasing. And he was thinking at that instant of Esther, as to where she had gone, or was now. What might have befallen her, who could say? What might have been done to her? Had this girl, by any chance, ever had any such unfortunate experience as she had had? He felt a growing, if somewhat grandiose, sympathy, and looked at her as much as to say, you poor thing. Yet for the moment, he would not trust himself to say anything or make any further inquiries. Yes, this is, uh, this all feels right, doesn't it? That she is playing coquettish with him. She, uh, she has sized him up as a rube and is looking for ways to separate him from his money. He is looking at her as, oh, oh, she's, you know, she's not like the others. You know, she's, she's, uh, he's buying the pitter-patter that she's selling. He's drinking the snake oil. And, uh, she, he's, he's pleased because she has, uh, isolated him from his fellow bellhops and said, oh, no, you're not like those guys, those ruffians, those bellhops, they come in here every now and again and have their fun, but you, you're a little bit more intelligent, I can tell, just by looking at you. You've got better manners. 
And he's fallen for it, hook, line, and sinker, because he's young, raw and green, just as Dreiser said. You fellas who come into a place like this always think so hard of everybody. I know how you are, but we're not as bad as you think. Clyde's brows knit and smoothed again. Perhaps she was not as bad as he thought. She was a low woman, no doubt. Evil, <laughs> but pretty. In fact, as he looked about the room from time to time, none of the girls appeared to him more. And she thought him better than these other boys, more refined. She detected that. that the compliments stuck. Presently, she was filling his glass for him and urging him to drink with her. Another group of young men arrived about then, and other girls coming out of the mysterious portals at the rear to greet them, Hegland and Ratterer and Kinsella and Higsby, as he saw mysteriously disappeared up that back stairs that was heavily curtained from the general room. And as these others came in, this girl invited him to come and sit upon a divan in the back room where the lights were dimmer. Yes, she understands you need to take this uh, in stages and in steps with Clyde as raw and green as he is. She needs to lead this particular rumba as they sashay from the general meeting room to the room in the back where that upright piano is playing raucous jazz melodies. And bring the bottle of soda with you and the whiskey. Why don't you, Clyde? If you come back here with me, we don't have to do anything. Let's just sit and talk. Why don't we? And sip our whiskey and get to know each other a little bit better. And then if the mood should strike you, well, we'll see what happens then. But for now, let us just engage in pleasantries and hints of pillow talk. And now, seated here, she had drawn very close to him and touched his hands, and finally linking an arm in his and pressing close to him, inquired if he didn't want to see how pretty some of the rooms on the second floor were furnished. And seeing that he was quite alone now, not one of all the group with whom he had come around to observe him, and that this girl seemed to lean to him warmly and sympathetically, he allowed himself to be led up that curtained back stair and into a small pink and blue furnished room, while he kept saying to himself, that this was an outrageous and dangerous proceeding on his part, and that it might well end in misery for him. He might contract some dreadful disease. She might charge him more than he could afford. He was afraid of her, himself, everything, really, quite nervous and almost dumb with his several fears and qualms. And yet he went, and the door locked behind him, this interestingly well-rounded, and graceful Venus turned the moment they were within and held him to her. Then calmly, and before a tall mirror which revealed her fully to herself and him, began to disrobe. End of chapter 10. And so, you know, I sort of like the way that this book is organized with chapters that are just about podcast length. Are they not. And so uh, I'm happy to end it there. We are a little bit short again, as sometimes happens. It's a short chapter, you know, there's not much to say. They assembled, a gal came around, 
gave him the business, you know, uh, pressed a drink into his hand, rubbed up against him a little bit, cooed him into the back room, whispered sweet nothings into his ear, and then, like the professional that she is, calmly led him upstairs to that pink and blue furnished room on the second floor where she began to disrobe. And we can well imagine that once that process begins, uh, it is unlikely to end in any way except one. And so, you know, and so it shall be. I mean, Clyde is a young man sowing his oats out there in Kansas City. Yeah, he could get a dreadful disease. Yeah, this could all end in misery for him. But, you know, on the other hand, maybe it'll be grand. You know, maybe popping his cherry just like this is exactly what the doctor ordered for Clyde. You got to get out into the big wide, wide world sometime. He's no longer a youth. You know, he's practically middle-aged by the standards of the day. Young man of 17, 18 years old. Why, you know, 18 is the new 40, or the old 40. And he's just out there, you know, doing what he can. Experiencing life and, uh, and making the, the most of it and the best of it. And we'll see how he reacts to this new change in fortunes, this new adventure. We'll see exactly how Clyde responds to his new status as a deflowered man of the world. But that'll have to wait for another fortuitous episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedren. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Ian Black. And get even more obscure content at our site, patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Thank you for listening.